In this episode, Mark Freeburn, Head of Board and CFO Practice at Odgers Bernson, describes how the role of CFO has grown dramatically over time. He outlines the career path it could take you to main board level and emphasises the importance of relationship building for high-performing CFOs, especially in today's market. Hi, I'm Ross and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Mark, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Nice to see you. So Mark, on this podcast, the main guests we've had are CFOs and you've partnered with so many of those down the years as part of your role as an executive search leader and particular leader of the CFO practice. So can you talk a little bit about what your role is and actually how you can be an effective executive headhunter? Yes. So I think our role really plays into two main areas. One we advise people in the finance function on how to develop their careers to the level of their ambition. So if someone wants to be a mainboard CFO and we meet them at an earlier point in their career, then we'll try and help them understand the experience and the skill sets that they need to develop in order to be the most credible candidate when it comes to getting that role. If you think about it, in order to be a CFO, you need both the competency level, so technical capability, operational capability, commercial, strategic, external, and then you will need cultural resonance with the organization and with the CEO or the leader that you're going to be business partner alongside. I can't help someone develop chemistry, right? I'm good, but I'm not that good. So your personality is your personality. All I can do is marry that up. But what I can do is I can help people understand where the market view of their skill set would be today, what the market expectation of their skill set needs to be for them to be a successful CFO in that context, and what the gaps are and what roles will help fill those gaps. And then the second way I'm helpful is clearly when I understand those gaps and I understand someone's career aspirations When a client comes to me and says, I need to hire a CFO and this is the skill set I'm looking for, I can then marry that up with the skill set of the individual that I know. And I know they want the role because I know that role develops them further down their career path. So does that mean then in your specific world, you're dealing with primarily CFO roles or do you deal with other financial leadership type roles? We have tried to make a virtue for a reason that I can bore you with if you're interested in identifying talent in the function across mainstream finance roles. So finance director, financial controller, divisional finance director, divisional finance controller, regional finance director, and so on. 
down to three or four layers within the finance function. So director, controller, manager. And then we also help and advise on the appointment of some of the niche specialty areas within finance. So audit, tax, treasury, M&A, strategy, business development, investor relations. I bet I've forgotten one, but broadly that suite of support functions to the finance director delivering their role successfully. So that's actually incredibly broad. Yes. The reason why we do it like that is because when I started at Odgers, I worked for an absolutely phenomenal woman who's still in the industry. And when she left, I was 28 and really far, far too young to be doing the job that I was given, which was to try and run the CFO practice after her. And so I spent three months going around the market, basically saying to the CEO of Vodafone, you should let me hire your CFO. And the CEO of Vodafone essentially patted me on the head and went, oh, that's very sweet. Aren't you funny? Now run along. And so I realized after three months, I either had to change jobs or I had to come up with a different strategy. And so what I did was I went out and I spoke to the CFO community and I basically said to them, what do you find irritating about headhunters? And after the first minute of you know, you're all charlatans. What they all pretty much said was, you're great when we are candidates because you've all got the CFO roles we're interested in. You can give us really good advice about what we should be earning. And that's all we really want from you. But you are hopeless when we're a client because none of you know the developing candidate population coming through. So we don't get to engage you at the level we'd like to work with you at because you're not interested. And I thought, well, I I don't have a market at the level that you think I want to work at because I'm clearly too young. So I will make a virtue out of recruiting your talent for your function. But if I'm going to do that, then I have to recruit across every part of your function, which means I've got to know the tax, the treasury, the internal audit, the M&A community just as well as I know the up and coming finance community. It's a really interesting approach because I guess that in outside of the CFO world, that everyone, especially if you work in tech, will have come across different forms of of recruitment firms. And I know that there's huge differences between them. And I know that it also executive search is a, is a very specific field. But what often happens is, as you said, is that there's huge intensity and focus around cl- uh, fulfilling client projects, briefs. But after that, because you're you're having to work on those briefs, there's not a lot of time in network building outside of that. So I think it's really fascinating to hear you talk about the idea of like starting first and foremost by building relationships and giving people advice on what they need to do to get to where they would like to get to. I've not heard many, many or seen many agencies approach you like that. Well, again, not that I'm wishing to give my competition the route to be as successful as we're trying to be, but I don't understand why that approach is seen as so rare. Because if you want to create a long-term sustainable relationship, you create a circular relationship where you advise people when they want help in developing their career, and you advise people when they want to hire people that will help them do better and develop their career that way. And if you create this circular relationship where every individual that you deal with benefits wherever they sit on that circle, you, I think, provide a full service offering, which as a consultant is all I want to do. 
And it also means that you are consistently advising. And if you give me the choice between being transactional or advisory, advisory is way more fun. You build a much better relationship with the individual that you're dealing with. It's intellectually so much more stimulating. You feel more valuable. I mean, I have a theory as to why others don't do it, but I don't have that kind of an ego. I want to build something sustainable, which the people that work with me can continue to grow into when one of them's brave enough to push me out of a window. And I guess as well that if you're going only for CFO type roles, those are inherently niche and that companies, if done well, should only be searching for those every three to five years or so. And you're then flipping from company to company doing these CFO roles. And that isn't conducive to building a relationship. I agree with you. But also, if you think about the salary levels of those individuals and the way that headhunters work, which is charging a fee based on the package that someone earns, you have to do three or four transactions at sub main board level to equate to working at main board. So the margin that you make as a firm is better when you're working at main board level, which is why that's the level that everyone aspires to work at. But I, and I now, with the benefit of hindsight, I claim that this was my strategic vision all along. If I'm honest, it was part that and part luck because I was forced to do this. But very quickly, it became apparent to me that there was a community of people that really, really wanted and needed advice who didn't network. Because if I'm being stereotypical about finance, traditionally, the function has always been quite inward looking. For a function which is so incredibly analytical in every other aspect of its role, finance people tend not to be massively self-analytical. And so when I started to go and engage with these people, and in essence, to ask them whether or not they would want that career advice if they were getting it from anywhere else, the response was, yes, I desperately want it. No, I'm not getting it from anywhere else. Please, could I maintain a relationship with you? Because I want to be able to pick the phone up to you at any point and say... I've been offered this job. I've been offered this opportunity. Someone's offered me this sort of experience. Is that good for my career or not? So perhaps we actually then going into the, the, that type of advice that you would offer, start off with the role of the CFO. Let's assume that someone would like to become a CFO. There's a lot that, that I mean, you've commented on this in, like, like over many years now uh, and in various articles, which is that the role of the CFO is evolving. And in, in some cases, uh, we've seen commentary on the fact that it's now a mini CEO. And that was actually like an article that was dated years ago. So it's not even, it's not even really that fresh. And th there was one comment that stood out for me that you made, which I really liked, which was that if you looked at the profiles 10 years ago, 15 years ago, all of the core elements of the CFO role are still there, but there's another two pages of responsibilities on top of that. Can you speak a little bit about your perspective on, because you've seen this over a long period of time now, on the evolving role and responsibilities of a CFO? I can, and forgive me, because I have studied this for 30 years, so I get quite passionate about this. If you think about it, right, back in the day, and I'm going back a long time, the primary role of the finance function was guarantee integrity of financial information within the business and without. So the, the stereotype view of the accountant as a grey, besuited bean counter comes because the primary responsibility for the finance function was to show that two and two made four and four and four made eight and eight and eight made 16. And therefore, on that basis, when the business said it had made 16 million pounds profit, it had done. And that was accurate. 
and you didn't need to question it. That was it. And then over time, people started to appreciate that the function had more to offer than that. And it really began in retail because what happened was it became apparent to people managing stores. If you knew how many red T-shirts had been sold in Liverpool, but not Leicester, and how many blue T-shirts had been sold in Leicester, but not Liverpool, that might draw a line between the fact that, as far as I'm concerned, the best club in Liverpool plays in red and the best club in Leicester plays in blue. And so, therefore, you could actually start to use the numbers to drive commercial decision-making. And so, suddenly, operational managers started to realise that where they had traditionally seen finance as annoying, computer says no as a function, actually, if they got people who understood what the numbers were telling them about performance, sales, marketing value, return on spend, promotion, whatever it might be, and they brought that into their intuitive operational thinking, you were adding science and intuition. And if you add science and intuition together, you get a better decision than if you're just using science or if you're just using intuition. Finance, therefore, started to engage itself in those conversations more and more and partner with those people. And then every industry over time woke up to the fact that finance added value in that regard. And so, therefore, finance started to take on a broader and broader role. As those people got to CFO level, the second thing happened, which is that CEOs looked at their desk and their diary and basically said, if you want me to do this, I'm going to have a heart attack. There is too much in my remit for one person. I don't want to have a heart attack. Who can I give some of this remit to? And the CFO turned around and went, me, because I'm the only other person with the breadth of vision across the organization. I'm the only other person that the business looks to in that commercial partner way. I've got that mix of technical, complete, finish, task mindset, and I'm crying out for more to do. So CEOs then turned around and said, okay, I don't want investor relations. I don't want strategy. I don't want IT. I don't want facilities. I don't want procurement. I don't want buildings. I don't want insurance. Here you have it. And the CFOs went, hallelujah, that's amazing. Thank you very much. And then a year later, for what it's worth, they all turned around and said, you know, the heart attack you were going to have, I'm now going to have it. That doesn't work for me either. I need to give some of my role to someone else, which is where the group financial controller role suddenly became much bigger than it had been. So you saw that cascade down, which by the by is why there's much more internal succession now than there used to be. Because effectively, there's sort of a, a now a, a consistent process of people acting as understudies for their bosses. And so, again, gradually over time, what that meant was shareholders started to see that when they were engaging with the CFO and the CEO, the CFO would contribute to that conversation as much as the CEO, but they were bluntly the backstop. So if I'm the CEO and you're the CFO and a shareholder is having a conversation with us, I will tell the shareholder, we are going to build a business on the moon, right? Because I'm the visionary. I'm allowed to wax lyrically about where the organization might get to. But when the shareholder says to you, Ross, what's actually going to happen, they know you have to tell the truth because integrity is everything for, you, for a CFO. 
And so the shareholders then started to look at the CFO as my rock solid guarantor of performance and truth, which meant the shareholders started to build a very, very close relationship with the CFOs. And so you then had the shareholders saying, we want to broaden out the role of the CFO because I want that person involved in more. You had the CEO saying, I want the CFO involved in more because A, they're my business partner, so I want them involved in everything. And B, I can't do everything you want me to and I've got to give it to someone. I'm going to give it to the CFO. You had the chair looking at that situation going, oh, okay, fine. So in order to make my shareholders happy and my chief exec happy, I have to have the broadest version of a CFO I can find. And if you do that often enough, then what you show the talent coming into the function at the bottom is that's what they should be aspiring towards being. So then you have the kind of holy trinity of external communicators saying, I want a broad CFO, CEO saying, I want a broad CFO, and talent coming through saying, we're only going to develop into that broad CFO role that our boss is doing. Well, then it's done. You're not just affecting the change of the CFO role, but the whole organization within corporate finance then starts to evolve significantly. Yes, because you aspire to do a better version of your boss's job. No child wants to be just as good as their parent. They always want to be 10% better. So if you look at your CFO and your CFO has good, consultative, critical but friendly relationships with CEO, sales director, marketing director, product director, country directors, and so on. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is a role where they drive performance improvement through influence, persuasion, or order. Because obviously, you do that better when you convince everyone it was their idea to do what you want them to in the first place. Sometimes you've got to tell people what to do. If I'm watching my boss do that job, then I'm doing that equivalent role at my level already. I'm aspiring to do that equivalent role when I get to my boss's level, but I want to do it even more. And so you're on a sort of process of continual improvement of the way in which the function engages with business. And we've heard like from our guests, of which your CFO is, many different paths towards CFO. Now, I think the traditional path you've alluded to is one through accountancy and accountancy or accounting, uh, it remains the bedrock, of course, of corporate finance. But we've also heard many, many different routes that have come in from like a, an FP&A type role or an M&A type role. And in some cases, CFOs who were brought in externally from an investment banking type experience and they understand corporate finance, they understand accounting, but they're not the tax and accounting experts, but they're brought in primarily to address some of the more strategic and capital market and investor relation responsibilities. Is that another trend that you've seen marry up with what you've described just there? So it was, and then Enron happened, and the world woke up to the idea that having someone as the ultimate accountant for a business who didn't understand accountancy was a brave move. And if it backfired, it backfired horrendously and people went to prison. And therefore, on that basis, it probably wasn't worth trying as much. So it does still happen. You do have people that come out of practice and and investment banks into organizations, but it is rare. So just to pick up on a couple of things, when you say corporate finance, people will hear that in one of two ways. Corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, technical accounting. I think you mean technical accounting. People who are listening to this 
will go one way or the other. And you just want to be clear about which one of those you mean. Otherwise, it'll confuse people. What we've seen is that over the last 20 years, the trend has gone from you must be a technically able accountant. And if you are, you can be a finance director. To you must be a technically able accountant. And if you are, you can join the process to see if you can be a finance director. But you also need to bring operational, commercial, and strategic experience. Because if all you do is accountancy, then you're the group financial controller or the chief accountant. Because the CFO is the business partner who engages with operational management across the organization to drive performance. And if you haven't got experience of doing that, then you are likely to be less capable as a finance director than someone that does. So if you strip that right back, then if you think about the interview process that a finance director is going to go through to become a finance director, so you know, you're an accountant aspiring to be a CFO, and you know that when you go for that first CFO interview, you're going to meet a chief exec, an audit chair, and a chairman. And they're going to ask you hundreds of questions, but they're all going to have one very, very specific spike. If you discount personality and fit and chemistry and, and you know, other individual elements, when it comes to experience, they're all going to have a very particular spike. So a CEO will ask you lots of things. What they're really thinking is, If I come in on Monday morning and I had a very alcoholic barbecue yesterday and I came up with this brilliant idea at midnight, which I think is genius, you're the person I'm going to tell. And if that idea is open an office on the moon, are you commercially astute enough to know that that's a really bad idea? Are you brave enough to tell the person that works out what your bonus is that it's a really bad idea, even if I think it's amazing? And are you then emotionally intelligent nice, clever, and argumentative enough to work through that idea with me. So at the end of it, I'm not going to do it, right? But I don't think I was an absolute moron for having the idea in the first place. And if you've done a divisional finance leadership role, right? So if you've owned the P&L of a business and you've worked with an MD for two years, you will have a thousand examples of where you've done that. And as a CEO, I don't want to have to teach you that, right? Because that's a difficult lesson. And I don't want to have to teach you that if what I'm teaching you is how to challenge me. Because if I have to teach you how to challenge me, one might argue that I've got too much influence over you and you won't challenge me. So I need to know that you've got the personality, the backbone, and the intellect to be able to do that for me. And I want evidence that you've done it. If all I've been is a group financial controller, I can't really evidence that experience because I've never done it right? I've watched other people do it. But I've watched other people perform heart surgery is not necessarily going to convince you to let them do your heart surgery. Then you go to the audit chair interview. And the audit chair will ask you lots of questions. What they're inherently thinking is what about your background technically means I can go to bed this evening and not have a nightmare that I will wake up tomorrow and see that The front page of the FT says, the business that I helped appoint you as finance director of has just had to restate its numbers because that is not great for the career development of an audit chair. And so they want to know about your technical competence. 
So I'm a qualified accountant is a good answer. I've been the group financial controller of your biggest competitor for the last three years. We've had clean audits every year. And here's the phone number of my audit partner. Ring them and ask them is a better answer. And so in a world where, and bluntly at the senior levels of finance, the talent at that level is insane in terms of quality. It's just remarkable how talented that group of people are. When you're trying to pick one out of that group, I mean, I don't think that's that nuanced a level of experience, but that's certainly nuanced enough that people will make decisions on that basis. So if all you are is the accountant, you don't bring the commercial capability. If all you are is the commercial partner, you don't give the business the technical confidence that they will never need to worry about their numbers. So if you don't offer both, you are risking competing with your twin who has your interpersonal capability, your emotional intelligence, your joie de vivre, your everything else that makes you who you are, but they have better experience for one of those two interviews, in which case the question then is, they're basically identical. It's just one of them has a better skill set match to the role that we are recruiting. Which one do you think we should hire? That one. So that's why I go on and on and on about candidates developing all the levels of experience they need so that when they go into an interview, no one's going to have better experience than them. They might have as good, but never better, because then it's a fair race. But if you walk into an interview and you know you're weak in one of those areas, I mean, it's not not worth being there, but you've given yourself an unbelievable mountain to climb when you didn't need to. I like the expression you used, which is, or, or the observation, which is that, that the talent at that CFO level is insane, is impressive. And you've alluded to some of them, but what are some of the characteristics that is necessary to be effective at that level? You've got to be bright. You've got to be numerate. You've got to be analytical. You've got to be independent of thought. You've got to be robust in terms of your personality because you won't always be popular. You know, when when someone comes to you with their dream of the greatest advert that Unilever have ever made, and it's going to win them 48 prizes at the Lions Festival in Cannes and everything else, and you say, no, you can't have the money, you're not a popular human being, and you've got to be robust and interpersonally strong enough to deal with that. But you also, you have to be business savvy. You have to be commercial. You have to be able to build relationships because so much of what you do externally when you're managing shareholders or M&A bankers or people who are supporting you with a debt raise is about the relationship that you have with that individual and your ability to get them to do what you need them to. You've got to be one heck of a people leader because you've got a big team many of whom are mini versions of you, and that takes some management. And this is where the stereotype, I think, is no longer fair. You have to be emotionally incredibly intelligent because a lot of what you're doing is through influence and persuasion. So the day where finance said jump and everyone said how high, it's not over, but it's much more nuanced and subtle now than it used to be. And so therefore, actually, what you're doing is you're persuading everyone they want to jump as high as you want them to. So they're all going, let's jump this high. And you as the finance director going, oh, that's a good idea. Where did that come from? Well done, whoever had it. So that that emotional intelligence, engagement, persuasion, and influencing capability has come through as an incredibly powerful personality trait. You have to have absolute integrity 
because if you lose your ability to guarantee that you're worthy of trust, you're just not effective as a finance director anymore. Because one of the things that the finance director will do is stand up and say, the business made this much money last year. That justifies why it's worth what it's worth. You can trust me on that. And if someone goes, well, I don't trust you, nothing they've said before that's of any value whatsoever. If you go back to what you said right at the start, Two-thirds of that would have been on the skill set list for the personality that we were looking for when I started in this industry. Guarantor of integrity, bright, sharp, you know, commercially savvy, all of that would have been there. But the personality dimensions have increased a lot around that emotional intelligence, engagement, persuasion, influencing side of the role and around the long-term strategic commercial piece. It's an impressive list. And to meet all of those criteria is certainly very challenging. And so what I'm wondering is if you then take that ideal role, you, you mentioned the, the the talent pool at that level as well. And then you then look at the market that's out there, of course, which you're active in at the moment, I'm sure in many different ways. How would you describe the market for, for CFO roles right now? Is it, is it a, an employer's market or is it a candidate's market? So it's a brilliant question. Post- financial crash in 2008, there have been more applicants than roles. And so what happened over a very long period of time is that organizations got used to asking for whatever they wanted. And I would turn around and offer them six of that, whatever their selection criteria were. So my favorite quote was an HR director who said, I feel like at the moment, if I asked you for a Martian with eight heads, four legs, two arms, eight pink spots on their back, and teeth made of gold, uh, you would just come back and go, here are four immediately, right? It's that level of selection criteria. And rather than me saying, are you crazy? I just go, here you go. I've got five of them actually. And then pretty much a year ago, when you know the great resignation started, that market flipped 180 degrees almost overnight. And so what you had was a world where for 13 and a half, 14 years, the hirers had been in complete control of the process and the candidate population had had to get comfortable with the idea that what it, you know, they may have wanted more, but the market wouldn't offer it to them. Suddenly, the candidates had all the power. And it's been fascinating watching a community of people who've had power in this process for 14 years, suddenly become accustomed and acclimatized to not having that power anymore. In the same way, it's actually been quite enjoyable watching a group of people who have felt very much like supplicants in this process move to at least parity in terms of power stakes. If anything, they've suddenly got a bit more of the power in that process. Because if you're getting 15 calls a week about really interesting jobs, you start getting a lot more comfortable saying no to the ones that you want to say no to. I'm not sure how long that'll last for. Ultimately, I'm personally happy when the balance is equal. I don't like a market where one group has more influence and power than the other, because I think that's when you create unfair decisions. But that's the joy of being an honest broker, right? It's better for me when I when there's parity, because then I can be transparent and guide a process rather than try and influence one person who thinks they've got more power than they should have to make a sensible decision. The interesting thing to observe is going to be what happens in about October, November this year, where I think the impacts of 
deglobalization, inflation, Putin, Ukraine, and food prices, energy prices, salary bite is going to really kick in. And you might see the pendulum swing back again at that point. And yeah, that's a, that was a natural place where I was looking to explore as well, because for months and months, there was this great, this narrative of the great resignation and that a lot of our guests that we've had on here cfos have found it incredibly difficult to not only hire great new people but to keep the great people they've got now you're in a market where over the past couple of months there's especially um for if you're in the technology or, or close to the technology market or venture backed uh, type of world then actually there there's significant layoffs and changes that are going on organizationally so it's that there's there are these two big macro trends that are almost competing. So it's interesting for you to comment on that. The other thing I'm wondering is, for now, whilst the pendulum hasn't swung back across, you've implied that the supply of great candidates and CFOs almost a year ago shifted. And so then that shifted the power. So what's the outcome of it? Is it that the employers are having to accept a lower caliber of candidate or more likely a, a smaller scope? Or is it that they're having to pay more for the same scope? There are elements of that, but I think there's a subtle difference. So in, in my mind, the pendulum swings between hiring talent and experience, right? So if you're in a market where you think you can ask for any skill set that you want and you're trying to mitigate the risk of the hire, you want as much experience as you can get. So in essence, you want somebody who's already done the job, right? That's the perfect outcome. If you're a candidate, you want a job that gives you new developmental experience, when there are more jobs than there are candidates, then candidates have the luxury of choice. Because if you're getting 15 phone calls a week, and three of those are do the same job you're doing at the moment, and 12 of them are do a job that gives you additional experience to the one that you're doing at the moment, you'll say no to the three and yes to the 12, and then engage through that process. The same is true in reverse, right? If you don't get a phone call for six months and you want a new job, after six months, you get a phone call that says, look, it's not a million miles away from the job you're doing at the moment, but it's in a different sector. You'll learn a different business model. That may be all you can get. And you know you're not going to get another phone call for six months. You're more likely to say yes. So where a client has power, they hire experience. Where a candidate has power, they offer talent. And at the moment, in a post-resignation world where there are more jobs being hired where businesses are fighting furiously to keep the good people that they've got. And therefore, there are fewer good candidates looking for a role when there are more roles out there. What we're having to say to clients is, I know you want to hire the Martian with six heads, four arms, two legs, six pink spots on their back, blah, 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 blah. But you can't because they're not going to come because they don't want to do the job you're offering them. So you're going to have to downgrade the level of experience you want. And what you're going to have to do is go and hire talent that you believe will be able to grow into the job you want them to do. So it's not that they're worse because both of those two people are just as talented as each other. It's just one's already done the job and one is talented enough to convince you that they will be able to do the job. Let's just say, again, we're focusing on the on the CFO, the leadership position. Does that apply to not just what they've experienced, but perhaps the scale of company they've experienced it at? Because in what you were saying, and we've had guests of who are either VPs of finance or CFOs, all the way from like early stage venture-backed 
through to late stage, through to public companies. And of course, those companies can be hugely different in scale, international scale, the number of employees, the revenue base and so forth, customer base. Is that another element there where a company might say, listen, we're at this size, but we we think this CFO who's managed a smaller scale operation is supremely talented and can grow into our organization. Is that another dimension? Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you think about the way in which we will assess candidates, part of it is belief in future talent, right? Which, I mean, broadly comes from where have you been put into situations you shouldn't have been experienced enough to deliver within and have you delivered and how did you do it? And then other elements of it are around the experience that they bring with them and what makes them suitable. So it is not quite as simple as I'm going to try and make it sound, but the rule of thumb is that you move from, unless you do this internally, you move from a number two role as the understudy to the CFO to a number one role externally, but in a business which is roughly half the size because the equation goes, and it really is not this simple, so no one's allowed to quote this to me, but the equation roughly goes you double up in terms of the learning curve when you step from a number two to a number one role. You therefore need to be able to manage the business you're doing that in without really having to think about it. And therefore, you go and do that in something which is half the size of the organization you're in currently. And net, net, again, it's not this simple, but you double in one and half in the other, net, net, that balances out and equals, right? And then once you've got into the, a number one role, then you double up in size each time you move. So if it's 300 million market cap, you move to 600. If it's 600 to 1.2, 1.2 to 2.4, and so on. Again, it is not that simple. Uh, there is always someone that proves me wrong. The most successful, and I would say in brackets, irritating of those examples was a guy called Martin Greenslade. Um, who I had this conversation with, and he promptly moved from a 300 million market cap business to a 6.4 billion market cap business and totally decimated my example forever. But he's the only one, right? So that means I still think I'm allowed to use it as an example. And roughly, roughly, it's sort of along those lines. So what that means is when, when you're looking at candidates, you're playing all of those elements off in terms of skill set, intellect, experience, size, scale, sector, geography, because, you know, if you're going to run a worldwide organization, you've only ever worked for a UK-centric business, that's a problem. And, you know, I've been on holiday in America, which has genuinely been used to me as an explanation for why someone should be able to consider that role, is not quite good enough in comparison to I've run a worldwide business. Um, when it comes to, you know, I understand the cultural nuances of running a more than one geographic organization. That's why I've always said recruitment looks really easy until you do it. And then actually the layers of complexity in that thought process are really quite deep. And Mark, as we are drawing the interview to a close, you've mentioned the fascinating insights on, on the, the market for CFOs, shall we call it that, the opportunities that are there, the increasing demands. Listening in, there'll be people who are aspiring CFOs. And of course, depending on their strengths, they might need to develop some of the aptitudes that you've mentioned. But given that this is, a, as you said, a core part of your role and how you build the business um, and, and your practice, what general points of advice would you give to those people who are aspiring CFOs so that they could be successful given this immense challenge that you describe? I wish I'd met you 20 years ago. So the first 
and I think in many ways, really the most important thing I can say to anyone, and I try and say this to everyone, it'll be the name of my book if I ever write one, think about your career backwards, right? Work out where you want to get to and then understand the experience you need to get there. Work out the roles that give you that experience. Work out how long you need to do them for. Work that backwards to where you are now. If you're on that path, you're heading in the right direction, keep going. But if you are not on that path, then first and foremost, go and talk internally to your boss and your HR partner and say, I want to get there. I'm currently here. I can't get those two paths to link up, which means I've got to do something different. Help me. And if you can't get help that way, because you will always do better internally, because you've got your career, your reputation, your network, your knowledge to exploit, to get the move you want. If you can't do that internally, then start thinking about how you do that externally, right? Or at least go through the thought process. Do I love this organization, this environment so much that I will sacrifice my long-term career development for the joy that I get working here? And that's fine, right? If that's if you make that choice and you make it actively, then you're working in a wonderful organization and that's great. But if the answer to that is no, that if your ambition is greater, then you have to start acting. And you really can do this in, in finance. You know, if you think, and again, I'm horribly oversimplifying this, but if you want to be in a non-exec role at 60, which is not an unreasonable thought process, you really need to have done a PLC role or two you're going to do both of those for three or four years. So it's not impossible to say, well, at 56, I need to be in a PLC role. And at 52, I need to be in a PLC role. To get a PLC role, ideally, you've done a group controller role for four years, three years maybe. So that means at 48, you've got to be in the controller role. You need to have done a divisional finance director role for three or four years, which means at 44, 45, you need to be in the divisional finance director role. So if you're 47 and you're not in a divisional finance director role, or a group financial controller role, and you want that career path, I would suggest you need to think about how you're developing your career. And you may need to think proactively about what you do to get yourself onto that track. Or you make the decision that you're not as ambitious as you thought you were, and it's more important that you enjoy what you do than you achieve the career goal you thought you had, all of which is perfectly fine. But then you own it, right? Because then what that lets you do is go and build the experience you need so that every interview you walk into, you know no one's going to walk in with more experience than you have. I'm copywriting it now because, like I said, if I get like an eight seconds space in my day, I'll try and write the book. Because I genuinely, the problem is I think that not unsurprisingly, the finance function is the best function to do that in because the skill set that you need versus the experience you get from the job is so clear so clear. I could sit down with a 21-year-old. I'm waiting until my children are 21, and then I'm going to try this, by the way. But I could sit down with a 21-year-old, and I could chart their path in terms of the jobs they need to do to get the experience they need so that at the age of whatever, they can walk into an interview, and no one will have better experience than them. And then it's down to the luck of chemistry. There aren't many other functions I think I could do that in, but you can absolutely categorically do it in finance. 
And with that, Mark, I think that's that's a brilliant point at which to, to wrap things up. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the podcast. Pleasure. Really lovely to speak to you. One last thing. We want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.